break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out 20th of August 2021. We got plenty for you here on the show. Very happy to be back with you as we always are here on the show. We're going to be talking about campaign finance laws in Georgia. We're going to be talking about the rights of the incarcerated people in the United States to bring lawsuits around their human rights. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to be talking about the crisis for children that is emanating from the crisis of the climate. Well, today, UNICEF has launched a new report. The climate crisis is a child rights crisis, introducing the Children's Climate Risk Index. In the words of UNICEF, it is the first, quote, comprehensive analysis of climate risk from a child's perspective. It ranks countries based on children's exposure to climate and environmental shocks, such as cyclones and heat waves, as well as their vulnerability to those shocks based on their access to essential services, end quote. They go on to further note that, quote, the report finds approximately one billion children Nearly half the world's 2.2 billion children live in one of the 33 countries classified as, quote, extremely high risk. These children face a deadly combination of exposure to multiple climate and environmental shocks with a high vulnerability due to inadequate essential services such as water and sanitation, health care and education. And by the numbers, they note that 240 million children are highly exposed to coastal flooding. 330 million children are highly exposed to riverine flooding. 400 million children are highly exposed to cyclones. 600 million children are highly exposed to vector-borne diseases. 815 million children are highly exposed to lead pollution. 820 million children are highly exposed to heat waves. 920 million children are highly exposed to water scarcity. And 1 billion children are highly exposed to exceedingly high levels of air pollution. And the report goes on to note that, quote, an estimated 850 million children, one in three worldwide, live in areas where at least four of these climate and environmental shocks overlap. And as many as 330 million children, one in seven worldwide, live in areas affected by at least five major shocks. And equally as notable, the report details that, quote, The report also reveals a disconnect between where greenhouse gas emissions are generated and where children are enduring the most significant climate-driven impacts. The 33 extremely high-risk countries collectively emit just 9% of global CO2 emissions. Conversely, the 10 highest-emitting countries collectively account for nearly 70% of global emissions, and only one of these countries is ranked as extremely high-risk in the index. The report lays out how young people living in the Central African Republic, Chad, Nigeria, Guinea, and Guinea-Bissau are the most at risk of the impacts of climate change. It's worth noting that the U.S. is ranked 80 out of 163 countries, so the richest country on Earth is not actually keeping kids the safest from the impacts of climate change. 
Yet another example that the rhetoric of freedom and democracy in the United States isn't quite what it's made out to be. Either way, here we are, yet again, with just more evidence that the climate crisis is imperiling the planet in unprecedented ways that place every species on Earth in extreme danger, and the world's richest, most powerful nation is more or less treating it with the collective shrug. One of the lesser known aspects of Bill Clinton's massive push to increase mass incarceration was the 1996 bill, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, or PLRA. The law made it much harder for the incarcerated to both file and win and settle lawsuits, and it was passed on the completely false grounds that incarcerated people were filing too many frivolous lawsuits. In reality, and as very ably demonstrated by Mamiya Abu-Jamal's fantastic book, Jailhouse Lawyers, Prisoners Defending Prisoners versus the USA, the real reason was that the network of jailhouse lawyers was a bulwark against some of the worst excesses of the system of mass incarceration. The Prison Policy Institute has just released a new report detailing the major impact the PLRA has had on the ability of prisoners to challenge the rampant abuses all across the U.S. prison and jail system. In 1982, for instance, there were roughly 30 lawsuits filed per every 1,000 incarcerated people. In recent years, that number has hovered at or around 10. One other notable aspect is that the percentage of prisons and jails covered by various court orders providing some level of regulation after past abuses has also plummeted after the PLRA was passed. In 1995, for instance, 40% of state prisons were covered by court orders. In 2005, it was just about 20%. Part of the reason why is that under the PLRA, defendants can ask the court to review and possibly terminate orders about prison conditions after just two years, even if the prison or jail has not fully met all or any of the terms of the order. And with the ability of prisoners to challenge conditions in the courts themselves, it's much harder to prevent these sorts of actions from ending up in premature reversals. So how exactly does the PLRA make litigation harder? Two main ways, the exhaustion rule and the three strikes rule. As for the first, the Prison Policy Initiative details, quote, the PLRA makes many lawsuits non-starters by requiring cases to be dismissed if plaintiffs have failed to, quote unquote, exhaust all of the prison or jail internal administrative grievance processes before taking their case to court. Working through these administrative processes can be complicated, require meeting difficult deadlines, and often prove fruitless. This allows suits to be dismissed for absurd and unfair reasons. For example, when grievances were filed in the wrong color ink or failed to meet incredibly tight deadlines as short as two or three days in some states. And as for the three strikes rule, the PPI lays out that, quote, the PLRA makes incarcerated people who make 14 to 63 cents per hour on average ineligible for a waiver for fees to file lawsuits, meaning that they must pay the $350 federal filing fee. While most incarcerated people may pay these fees by installment over time, the PLRA's three strikes rule states that after filing three claims that a judge decides are frivolous, malicious, or do not state a proper claim, incarcerated plaintiffs can be required to pay fees up front with few exceptions, end quote. But that's not all. The PLRA makes it harder to actually win cases through something called the physical injury requirement and also by discouraging outside lawyers from getting involved in prisoners' complaints. And the report by PPI explains the physical injury requirement thusly, quote, Incarcerated people are allowed to sue over unlawfully inflicted physical injury, but the PLRA restricts the remedies available in cases where people are alleging only mental or emotional harm. 
Many courts have interpreted this to mean that people cannot receive money damages for their prison or jail injuries unless they can show that they suffered extremely serious physical injury. Many courts have also found that this provision applies even to constitutional claims about, for example, free speech, religious freedom, discrimination, and due process, thereby denying incarcerated people the ability to seek financial compensation for the violation of their constitutional rights, end quote. And as for outside lawyers, the report explains that, quote, the PLRA imposes two sharp additional limits for incarcerated plaintiffs. It caps recoverable attorneys fees at below market rate and insists that these fees total no more than 150 percent of any damages awarded to the plaintiff. But damages for incarcerated people are generally quite low, both because they don't experience lost wages and because they often cannot recover more than nominal damages absent significant physical injury. The result is that knowing incarcerated plaintiffs cannot win reasonable attorney's fees, civil rights lawyers are deterred from taking them on as clients, end quote. And if that all wasn't enough, the PLRA also makes it harder to settle cases. As the PPI report lays out, quote, in most types of litigation, parties have a lot of latitude to craft settlement agreements that fit their needs. However, the PLRA sharply limits court enforcement of settlements that include quote-unquote, perspective relief. That is a change to policy or practice going forward. Enforcement is allowed only if the court has specifically found that these changes are necessary to cure the violation of a federal right. Some courts have interpreted this requirement to mean that defendants cannot merely agree that a settlement is appropriate. Instead, these courts have held that either the court must have enough facts to determine that there was a violation of a federal right, or the parties must clearly stipulate that there was one. But one of the main reasons defendants in all types of cases settle is to avoid those kind of damaging admissions. By making it so hard for incarcerated plaintiffs to settle, the PLRA takes away their best chance at a positive outcome. So as you can see, despite the fact that the PLRA isn't as well known as some of the other egregious policies brought forward in the Clinton administration as it concerns mass incarceration, its impact on maintaining extremely brutal conditions for prisoners is really quite substantial. Georgia has decided to just go ahead and give up the ghost on pretending money can't buy elections there, it seems. And they've passed a new law this year, Senate Bill 221, that allows candidates for governor and lieutenant governor and leadership positions in both houses of the state legislature to be able to form what are known as leadership committees and take unlimited donations. And you may not be surprised to hear that Governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, not only signed the law and is, believe it or not, running for office next year, but has, in fact, set up his own leadership committee and is expected to face a very high profile campaign against Stacey Abrams, who will also undoubtedly raise very large amounts of money. In 2018, the governor's race in Georgia had a $100 million price tag, which will almost certainly be higher this time around. And also, you might be interested to know that dark money groups who don't have to disclose their donors can also get in on the unlimited donation game to these leadership committees. The Georgia law also gives a big boost to incumbents because you have to be the designated party candidate in order to set up one of these committees. So incumbents can get a huge chunk of unlimited donations from super wealthy donors before their competitors even get out of the gate. The rise of dark money, of course, is a major phenomenon in politics these days. Super PACs who have to disclose no real donor information, for instance, spent over $3 billion in the 2020 election cycle. Sadly, unlimited donations are not anything like rare either at the state level. 18 states allow unlimited donations in state contests. All in all, it's just another reminder, really the third one today, in fact, that the idea that the U.S. is some beacon of democracy is just... 
a bit of a stretch. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 